Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you all. Good morning after the night before. We praise God for his goodness and his faithfulness, always. And um, I trust that as we dip into our third episode in this drama that is the book of Ruth, the Lord will speak to and encourage our hearts today. Thank the Lord for um, us being able to just take the time and, and go through this book. And as with all scripture, it's inexhaustible. There's so much that we could juice from this rich text. And so as we come together on each occasion and also at community group, the endeavor is to hear what the Lord would say to us on this occasion. And I'm sure as you go over the text in your personal reading time, um, the Lord will continue speaking to you through it. So we're in the book of Ruth, Challenges, Choices, and God's Great Providence. Challenges, Choices, and God's Great Providence. And we have a question on the table today with regards to our sister Ruth. Indecent or inspired proposal? Now, some will be, um, maybe have your mind cast back to the, the film of the title, Indecent Proposal, and um, it, was quite a, uh, it caused quite a stir when it, it was released. Um, I guess due to the nature of the, um, the female character's um, boldness and brazenness, um, as she, I think it was, was it Sharon Stone? As she pursued Michael Douglas. And there was a certain kind of um, lack of regard and, and lack of um, virtue, I guess, that was part of the reason that was um, the cause for the stir that was caused by her character. And um, some have looked at this chapter in Ruth chapter 3 and um, actually dared to suggest that Ruth was acting in like manner with, a, with a, a certain level of indecency. And it could well be the case. So as we walk through the text, let's consider what it speaks to us. Let's endeavor to rightly understand it, that we might ascertain whether it was truly an indecent or rather an inspired proposal. Now, one of the things that I think really kind of spoke to me in this text, and um, I think it, it reminded me actually of a story that I heard. Um, the story of a, a Christian who lived in a, a vulnerable area in that it was a floodplain. And this individual had heard the flood sirens and had began to pray and said, Lord, I trust that you're going to deliver me and you're going to send me a helicopter. And they stood in faith, believing that a helicopter would come to rescue them. And as the, the flood waters came up to the door threshold, Fireman came to the door, come on, you need to get out, it's time to go. 
And um, the individual said, no, it's okay. The Lord has it under control. He was expecting a helicopter, you see. And as the floodwaters rose up to the level of the windows and somebody came along in a rowing boat and they said, come on, get aboard. He said, no, it's okay. The Lord has it under control. Because he was expecting a helicopter. And as the waters rose even further still and he climbed onto the roof out of the window and a motorboat came along this time, said, come on, get on board. He said, no, it's okay. The Lord has it under control. What do you think happened to that Christian as he was there on the roof? Do you think a helicopter came? Why would you not think that a helicopter came? He was on the roof in the best place to, to grab the safety line. Well, I could say to you that he drowned. I might say to you that he drowned. But actually, it's a fictitious story. So who knows how it ended? But we would be quite right to suggest that actually it would be no surprise if the story ended with that Christian drowning on the roof of his house expecting a helicopter. And why would we not be surprised to think that? Because the Lord provided means of escape, right? The Lord provided, and yet he had spurned the Lord's provision and not laid hold of it with both hands. So often as Christians, we find ourselves in such a place where we have a tendency to spurn the Lord's provision rather than take hold of it with both hands. And so as we resolve this issue of whether or not Ruth is making an indecent or inspired proposal, let's consider Ruth's response to her situation in the light of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the fact that you are almighty and all-knowing. We thank you, Father, that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in and through the person of Christ Jesus as testified to by your word. And I ask that today, Lord, you would galvanize our hearts and minds, that you would grant us courage, that, Lord, you would grant us wisdom as we seek your face to do your will. And we ask this for the glory of God. Amen. So we're in Ruth chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there with me. And um, if you're just joining us for the first time today, um, I'll give you a, a little bit of a recap. So basically, Naomi is the, is the matriarch, the, the kind of senior motherly figure in this story. And she and her husband, Elimelech, are originally from Bethlehem, um, which is in Judah. And um, there was a famine. And so Naomi and her husband and her two sons, Marlon and Kilion, went off to Moab to find food. And whilst in Moab, Naomi's husband died. And also her two sons died. But before her sons had died, they had taken wives of, of Moabite women. They got married in Moab. And um, 
Yet they died, and so the three ladies were left, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And um, at that point, they had been out in the fields um, gathering food and heard that there was food back in Bethlehem where they had come from. And so Naomi determined to return to, to, return to Bethlehem, and she sought to discourage her daughters-in-law. You see, they were in a very vulnerable place. They were all widows. They had no um, male relatives um, in order to provide for them as breadwinners. And so they were in a place where their survival was quite um, uncertain. And so Naomi, being more mature of years and concluding that she didn't have the capacity to have any more children to provide or raise up sons to marry her daughter-in-laws, gave them the option. Look, in fact, she didn't even give them the option. She discouraged them. Go away. Go to your people. Go and have a life. And so Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, she um, determined after persuasion to return to Moab and to her people. And yet Ruth determined to stay with Naomi. And she said, wherever you go, I will go. And your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so she remained loyal to Naomi. Even against um, what would have been considered the better judgment. There was no hope, no evident future with Naomi. But Ruth remained faithful. And God began to work in their lives and Ruth found favor as they returned to Bethlehem as she went out to gather food in the field. And she found favor from, first of all, Boaz's servants. Boaz is the kind of leading male character in this drama and he is a landowner. He has workers. His workers had been gracious to Ruth to allow her to collect food behind the harvesters as they were going harvesting. And um, Boaz took note of her and sought to inquire, who is she? Who, is, who's, who does she belong to? Who does she work for? And they said to Boaz, she's a, she's a gleaner, basically. She's one who has no one. She's in poverty. And she is um, carrying out her right as under the law, to, to collect the scraps from our harvesting, as it were. And so Boaz began to show her favor in chapter 2. And it was revealed as Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, um, began to, to, to conversate with Ruth, to talk with her about her day's work and being astounded at the amount of food that she had brought home because Boaz had blessed her abundantly. She realized in chapter 2 and verse 20 that the Lord had been providential. He had provided because not only had Ruth gained favor and food as a result of that favor, but she had now run into family. And having run into family, it was revealed that Boaz was qualified to be what is called a redeemer. 
a redeemer. He is a, a kinsman redeemer or a relative rescuer. And so to chapter 20, it says, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, this concept of the relative rescuer or the kinsman redeemer is something that we need to give a little attention to as we go into chapter 3 because it is a very key aspect of the story. And Pastor Rob touched on it um, previously and it may be helpful for us to have a look at Deuteronomy Chapters 25, 5 to 10. This gives us the the legal backdrop to the expectation of the role of the relative rescuer. Reading from verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of her husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. I mean, this is real drama, yeah? And so as we understand the backdrop to Ruth and what's going on here and what's at stake, and the fact that Boaz now is the one who qualifies to fulfill the responsibility of raising up heirs, raising children in the name of his dead relatives in order that their name may be continued. There's, there's a bit at stake here. So it's not just the sake of Ruth's well-being and Naomi's well-being, which I'll clarify in a moment, but also it's his honor that's at stake. Is, is, if Boaz doesn't do this, I mean... Nobody likes to get a spit in the face when it's by accident, right? Somebody's talking and the drool just kind of flies out and you kind of like want to be polite. You don't want to say, but you just discreetly wipe it away and then reach for the anti-back and start. But imagine somewhat, I mean, 
This wife has the right to be indignant, this widow I should say, and she will go to him and spit in his face. I mean, she could cork up a green one. It's true. Thank you, Selena. I have a witness in the front row here. It's true. Because she has been dishonored. And she'll pull the sandal off his foot. Now notice the relationship between feet and dishonor slash honor. Because it plays a significant part in our text. Yeah? Note that. I'm going to take the sandal off his foot. And he will be known as the shoeless one. Shameful shoeless household. All right then. So that was the, the fundamental um, consideration behind the role of the kinsman redeemer, at least as it related to Ruth and Naomi. Now, again, just to underline the real uncertain and vulnerable nature of their state of existence at this point, they didn't have the working rights that men had in those times. They didn't have the, um, the income generating power that men had in those times. And so for them to actually eat and survive and even have somewhere to live in a secure fashion um, was quite a challenge for them. Often when women found themselves in this place where they were widowed um, without um, descendants, without children to be a support to them, in fact, children were even a form of um, pension um, in the sense that they would provide for their parents when their parents are beyond ability to provide for themselves. And so this was the culture at the time. And fundamentally, a widow that is without support could find herself in a place most commonly of poverty, um, sometimes they may even turn to prostitution. And um, Louisa mentioned this at community group on Thursday, and it's very true that it wasn't unknown for widows to turn to prostitution in order to try and um, provide for themselves. And um, aside from those two things, they perished. And so the favor that Boaz had shown so far was considerable, but they were still in an uncertain place because how long would this favor continue? What if Boaz killed over and died and whoever succeeded him decided not to show the same favor? So, let's pick up at the end of chapter 2. As we go into chapter 3. From verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, 
gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So at the end of chapter 2, we see a summary statement that concludes and um, gives the picture of the state of affairs during this season. Ruth was able to continue gleaning. We know it was for a period of time because it was the end of both the barley and wheat harvests. And so she'd been doing this for some time. And during this time where they were provided for, she lived with her mother-in-law. And so she remained faithful to Naomi in the good times as well as the bad. You know, Ruth was in a place where she had a reputation which was good and honorable. She had favor from a noble man being um, Boaz, as we were told earlier in chapter 2. And really, she could have actually just thought, you know what, I've kind of come good in this situation. Let me just build a few new social circles. Let me, um, you know, pursue a few friendships and relationships um, to the point where it could have caused her to be drawn away from Naomi. Some of us may have experienced that. We've been walking with people in the hard times. And yet, when the good times come, moving to new social circles, new opportunities, maybe they get a new job, you don't see them anymore. All of a sudden, they've forgotten you. Because they know people with fast cars and lots of money. And who drink in the B-list bars. Maybe you were that person. Maybe you've been that person. When things turn nice, you turned your back. Well, it's something that can happen to us all one way or another. And yet we see tremendous example of faithfulness in Ruth as she remained faithful to Naomi during that time. Verse three, um, chapter 3, sorry, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So Naomi considers Ruth's welfare. She's wanting to seek rest or wanting to seek a settled life for Ruth. And she now sees the potential fulfillment of what she couldn't see back in chapter 1. When she was saying, can I have any more children to give you husbands so you can be catered for? At that time, she saw no hope, but now she does. She's wanting to seek rest. Time has passed. And nothing has happened. Time has elapsed elapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And they've gone on with their daily life. How long is not absolutely clear, but we know it's a significant amount of time. So this wasn't a hasty, this wasn't a desperate, this wasn't a rushed suggestion. In fact... As we read on, we'll see that 
There is substance to this suggestion. Verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative? Notice how Naomi says our, speaking of both Ruth and Naomi, acknowledging Ruth's relationship and her right. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young men you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she, Ruth, replied, all that you say, I will do. So, Naomi identifies the fact that Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor, winnowing the barley. Winnowing was basically the process of separating the substance from the chaff. Um, if you, if, if, I'm, a, I'm a person, I like monkey nuts. They're called monkey nuts, right? You know what I mean when I say monkey nuts, yeah? And so when you crack the shell, it's got that little kind of um, husky part around the, the actual nut itself. Um, I'm a man, I don't care. I just choose to eat that anyway. But No, I don't mean the shell, bro. you <laughs> think I am? I don't mean the shell. I mean the little husky part. But with the barley, it would have had a, a husky, and we also would have had a, a husky part around it. And so in the process of winnowing, they would find a place that had um, a good wind flow. They would throw the, the barley in the air, and the chaff would be blown off, and the barley would fall to the ground, and then they would gather it up. And so that was their process of, of sifting. Um, the, the, the phrase we, we're coming with is wheat from the chaff. And... Um, they would do it in the evening because the wind wouldn't be too strong so as to blow the barley away as well. Also, this was a very festive endeavor because it's the end of harvest. This is like payday. So you know that the payday dance you do when you check your account and your money's gone in and you're thinking about, yeah, it's payday. You're gonna, um, ta- you're gonna, first thing you're going to do is have a takeaway before you think about how you spend the rest of your money. You might get on the phone to a couple of people. You're saying you're going to go cinema. Da, da, da. You're, you're feeling bossy now because you know you got some you got some dough. Spirits are high. This was the mood that they were in at this season. There, it was the end of harvest. It's payday. They've got their food. They've got their provisions. They've got their income. They've got their means of generating income. And so it would have been a festive time. There would have been maybe music and so on and so forth. And so that would have been the scene at the threshing floor party atmosphere Naomi says to Ruth make yourself decent make yourself presentable wash and anoint yourself and put on your cloak now we see the word anoint and we might think you know Naomi was saying look cream your skin I needed to ask somebody for some help yesterday and I got some I got some salubrious I mean I I don't even know whose it was. I think it might have been Marina's. I got some shea butter with lavender and... And who? It was Marina, yeah? Listen, 
I just was thinking that I might get a little Nivea cocoa butter if I'm lucky. But this was scented. It was, mm, was kind of greasy though. You have to rub it in well. But when they speak of anointing, they're speaking about that kind of, um, that, 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 I wouldn't even say grease, but that, that it's, it's a bit like cologne. You know cologne or um, eau de toilette? It's, it's alcohol and scent, and it lasts longer. And, and some of them have got a little oil in there so that it stays on your skin longer. And so the idea of anointing was put on some nice scent and clean up yourself and go down there. So Naomi sends Ruth off to the threshing floor looking presentable. And I mean, who doesn't want to recognize a sense of occasion? She's going into a party atmosphere. Um, and we'll see in, in a little while that actually, whether or not she had done this, would it have really made a great deal of difference? Would it have made a great deal of difference the way things pan out in terms of her being noticed by Boaz? And with regards to the proposition, would it have hindered her proposition if she hadn't done this? One of the things that mature women are able to do is to teach younger women a sense of occasion. Just as it is with mature men teaching younger men a sense of occasion. And although we're not bound by tradition, we definitely want to function as people redeemed by Christ, gospel-centered individuals. We want to function in a way that doesn't cause a hindrance to us fulfilling God's purpose. We want to function in a way that doesn't cause a hindrance to us fulfilling God's purpose. On certain occasions, we might behave in certain ways. We may dress in certain ways. We may speak in certain ways. On other occasions, we will change our approach. I say let the determining factor be the purpose of God. Ruth was here going to fulfill the purpose of God. You see, Naomi... In verse 2, had highlighted again, Boaz is our relative. She's reminding Ruth of the fact, after this lapse of time, that Boaz is an eligible redeemer. One whom God is able to use to secure their situation. And so, as Ruth was going down to the threshing floor, this was more than just Naomi matchmaking. This was Naomi sending Ruth out to fulfill the purpose of God. And we know it's the purpose of God because we just read from Deuteronomy, which was the law that they were submitted to and under, that this was the right and proper procedure. It was endorsed by God's word. And so as Naomi gives this counsel, she's given this counsel, this wise counsel, on the authority of scripture. We have to note this because evidently there are times in our lives when we're not sure what to do. And we know that we need help. And we appreciate, as it says in Proverbs, that among many counselors there's safety. But not 
every counsellor is going to talk sense. That's okay. That's okay. Because by the wisdom of God, we're able to pick sense from nonsense. And we're able to compare and contrast and have a point of reference by which we can eliminate that which is nonsense. How do we know if somebody is giving wise counsel? Well, the number one and primary way is does it align with God's word? Does it align with God's word? Because if it's consistent with the word, then we know it's good to go. We know that's wise counsel. Bear that in mind. So, Ruth is sent on the purpose of God. Naomi's sharing with her a sense of of occasion. She tells her to go down to the threshing floor. And she says in verse 4, when he lies down, notice, observe the place where he lies. So, don't, don't involve yourself with him while he's eating and drinking. And in fact, the idea of wearing a cloak is that she will keep her identity concealed. That she will maintain a certain level of discretion as she goes down to the threshing floor. She's not going down there to flirt with Boaz. Say, hey, Boaz, remember me, the one you gave the grain to? What are you saying? <laughs> she wasn't... No. That's not what Naomi was telling her to do, so don't get it twisted. She told her to put on the cloak. Let the man finish his revelries, his eating and drinking. There's a certain wisdom in there. I heard somebody say, a a hungry man is an angry man. (laughs) Don't come between a man and his food. I just. Wait until he's finished eating and drinking. And then take note of where he lies down. Then, not immediately, but then, go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. So Naomi's given clear instructions. And Ruth has expressed a willing obedience, verse 5. All that you say, I will do. How responsive are we to the Lord? How responsive are we to the word of the Lord? Ruth has been consistently not only faithful, but faith-filled. Naomi has just given her an instruction that actually was quite a risk. Because it was not unheard of in the setting of the threshing floor and the, the festivities and the revelries that's going on in that setting. It wasn't unheard of that female workers would be taken advantage of. And in fact, as Naomi has gone as far as to say, watch where Boaz lies down, uncover his feet and lay down. That could have been perceived as an invitation to sexual intimacy. 
It could have been perceived that way. Truly, Boaz's honor would be tested. Was he a real man of integrity? Or would he take advantage of Ruth? You see, some of us find ourselves in such places and are deeply challenged, especially after some revelry. You see, Boaz was at the threshing floor, eating and drinking. Hmm. Imagine if Boaz had got drunk, what his response may be like. Some of us can maybe identify with that because in those years when we were worse for, year, for, worse for wear, we found ourselves in that place where we've been, just say, a little more than inebriated. Some would say legless. But to whatever extent, we have done things and said things that we've later regretted. I think this is a very clear reason why in Ephesians 5 we are told, do not be drunk with wine as in excess. We are not supposed to allow ourselves to be brought under the power of anything that causes our consciousness and our state of consciousness to be altered in such a way where we don't have full control. Whether that be control of our lips or of our lives. People have said, okay, that speaks about drink. What about weed? Legalize it. Now imagine, they've legalized it in the US. In certain states, um, I think it's in Ohio, in certain places, they've legalized marijuana. So does that mean we're going to have after church fellowship? (laughs) They legalize it here. Who's got the Rizla? Why wouldn't we? Even if it were legal. Again, the same principle in Ephesians Ephesians 5 applies. We're not to be brought under the power of anything that causes us to lack control. What does Boaz do? So, verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, you know, He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his head. Did she uncover his head? She uncovered his feet. Remember I told you to take note of that, yeah? And she lay down. So Ruth was gone, having noted where he had lay. And at the appropriate time, She'd gone over discreetly. He, by this stage, had not recognized that she was there. He hadn't hadn't identified her. She went over and uncovered his feet. And she lay down. Now, there's been much speculation over this verse. What was going on here? Did she uncover his feet and snuggle up beside him? 
as some would give the impression. There are, there are even those who would say, uncovering the feet was a euphemism for exposing his nakedness. Suggesting that Ruth was making an inappropriate advance upon Boaz. Well, the text says she uncovered his feet. And she did uncover his feet. And there was good reason for Ruth to uncover his feet. We recognized earlier that it was a a fundamental aspect of the, the Leverite marriage as spoken of in Deuteronomy. Where the Redeemer was to carry out this responsibility of marrying the widow... If not, his feet would be uncovered. His feet would be uncovered. He would be a shameless, shoeless individual. Or I should say shameful, shoeless individual. And so Ruth uncovers his feet. And there's symbolic significance there. Ruth wasn't trying to get fruity with Boaz. She wasn't trying to play footsie under the cover. So there was symbolic significance there. But there was also practical significance. What do you do when you're in bed, trying to sleep, and your feet are uncovered? Your feet have got no quilt on them. They've got no sheet on them. What do you tend to do? You notice it, right? If not, you wake up. To try and make, because you're going to lose heat through your feet. You're going to feel cold instantly. And so you're going to be alerted to the fact that something's amiss. So in addition to the symbolic significance of his feet being uncovered, there was also the practical significance of an easy means of waking Boaz up. It is suggested When she lay down, did she lay down beside him? Well, verse 8 answers that question for us. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his side, clutching him. That's not what the text says, as some would have us to believe. A woman lay at his feet. Now, I know back in the days when we had relatives over and so on, we used, to, we used to sleep like two, even three to a bed. Some of you know those hard times. <laughs> and so, my, you know, I remember my grand saying, all right then, just turn head to foot. <laughs> you know the words, Pastor Ruth? Turn head to foot. <laughs> At least your body mass is going to be evenly distributed. It might be a little bit more comfortable. All right, then, yeah. Head to foot, but not face to foot. But still, that's not even how Ruth was lying. She was lying at his feet. As in, as he looked at his feet, he saw her down there. And he was startled, verse 9. Who are you? 
And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, some translations say, spread your garment. Which is a a reasonable translation of the Hebrew word that's used here. Some translations say, spread your skirt. And again, this is seen as being another suggestion toward Ruth making an indecent proposal. Spread, I mean, spread your garment over your servant. Come on, Boaz, bring me in. But this word had covenantal significance. So in verse 10, we see an indication of that. Boaz doesn't, as an honorable man, respond in a repulsed way. Huh? How dare you make such an indecent proposal to me? A man of honor and integrity. As our men would say in such a, a situation. Amen? <laughs> Amen to myself. <laughs> our men would say that. Because we have men of honor and integrity in here. And so any woman makes an indecent proposal. A man is going to say, how dare you say such a thing to me? Man of honor and integrity. Amen. They're going to say it graciously, though. Amen. But he says this in verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Immediately, he is called to mind of the covenant of God. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz was a mature guy. Some might suggest he had self-esteem issues, even though he was mature. He had, you know, some wealth and so on. But he recognized the significance of Ruth approaching him and fundamentally asserting her right to be considered for marriage. Asserting her right to be considered for marriage. Now, she never walked up to Boaz like certain ladies that I've seen and even, well, yeah, certain ladies that I've seen, I should say, really, because it's, it's, it has been that way around. Um, a friend of mine, we was at a, a church convention, a um, big convention hall in, in Leicester, and um, there were a couple thousand people there, and I was standing there with a friend, and a girl came up to him and said, the Lord showed me that you're my husband. You, exactly, so I'm looking at her... <laughs> And my friend standing there looking at her, and the brother that was in question was gone. <laughs> I look at her, and as I look round to see his response, I just see the door swinging in the background. But it's gone. Not even a debate or a negotiation. But Ruth didn't approach it like that. She recognized that it was the right to be considered. 
according to the word of God. And she reminds Boaz of this in verse 9. For you are a redeemer. According to covenant expectations. It's interesting this phrase because we see this phrase appear later on in Israel's history. Notably, we see it in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 8. And God is speaking to the unfaithful Israel. And at this point, he uses this phrase, which is referenced right back to this moment. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. God quotes this situation and this scenario later on in the history of Israel because they at that time understood what would be going on here. That Ruth was calling Boaz to his covenant responsibility. And God is saying, even to the unfaithful Israel, that I spread the corner of my garment. And you have to remember, in that culture... In some ways similar to ours today, but different, clothes denoted honor. So we see somebody wearing Versace and we think, hmm, they've got substance, they've got wealth. And it suggests to us something of their value or perceived value. But in that culture, clothes likewise denoted a sense of honor. So, for example, you'll recall later on, David, when he was being pursued by Saul, had opportunity to kill Saul. And he doesn't in um, 1 Samuel. And what he does is he cuts the, the, the fringe, the hem of Saul's cloak. Now, God had already ripped the kingdom from Saul. His honor was gone. And David was acknowledging, he was as he cut, the fringe of Saul's clothing, he was acknowledging that Saul was not a man with honor. He was a man without honor. And so when it speaks of spreading the garment, and in fact in Psalm 91, we read of he who abides under the shadow of the Almighty, living under his wings, And it's the same word, garment, skirt. It's the same word. It's that sense of being taken in, being um, received by one who's taking responsibility for you. It is actually an expression of submission. Spread your wings over your servant, Ruth said. I submit myself to your authority. I submit myself and ask you to take responsibility for me. And so, Boaz recognizes this. Verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. 
For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. How could Boaz say that about Ruth if she had just tried to snuggle and canoodle and play footsie with him under his garment? He'd be saying, all my townsmen said you were a worthy woman, a a, a moral, virtuous woman, but they were wrong. No. She is a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Uh Uh-oh. So we see this relationship, this friendship, this favor being, being established between Boaz and Ruth. And you've got to have a sense of the drama here. This looks like we're there. And, and this, this union's about to happen. And this is going to be the lived happily ever after aspect of the story. And then Boaz says, but there is a redeemer nearer than I. Basically a relative who was closer in relationship than he was. And so Boaz says this, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz here doesn't attempt to manipulate the purpose of God. Often we can be faced with opportunities that cause us to feel very hopeful and yet they seem as though in an instant they're going to be dashed. The temptation can be for us to try and manipulate. Boaz could have said, "Ah, you know what? I'm going to go and meet my man in his field. I'm going to bring a couple of my servants. I'm going to show him that I'm I'm a bigger man to him. And when I go to him and I'm going to just say to him, look, there's, a, there's a, a young lady who's been working with me and, you know, I kind of like her. And um, you're a redeemer and I'm the next in line. So what you're going to do is just, you're going to knock and you're going to pass so that I can. But Boaz, there was no hint of that. Boaz weren't trying to mess with the will of the Lord. We need to learn to do likewise. And so he says, remain tonight in the morning, verse 13. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So verse 14, she lay at his feet until the morning. She maintained the proper and appropriate posture. Lay at his feet until the morning. But arose before one could recognize another. So even in her leaving, she exercised decency and decorum. Not wanting to have her or Boaz's honor called into question. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. No gossip, no loose talk. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. Verse 15. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you get on? 
my daughter. Notice, went from Moabite to daughter-in-law to my daughter. (laughs) How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi replied in verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. No procrastination. No delay. So, Ruth returns with the six measures of barley that Boaz has measured out to her. And she takes that to Naomi. And Naomi is encouraged, even to the point where Naomi says, he will not rest until this is resolved. How was she so confident? How did she know? Was it just the positive feedback that she got from Ruth? Or was there more to it? There are two things that are suggested with regards to the six measures of barley that Boaz measured out. Some have said that this was a bride price being paid as a down payment, uh, 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 a show of good faith. But that's unsubstantiated. It's hard to say. There are others who have said, by way of Jewish midrashic interpretation, that the six measures of barley represent Boaz's commitment to work at the matter. So if you think about how many measures were there? Good, you're awake. And in how many days did God create? Thank you, six. Because on the seventh he done what? Rest. Notice in verse 18, the man will not rest seventh day ain't gonna catch him as in he's gonna do all the work necessary to resolve this matter he's not gonna rest and so in their framework and within their culture it is suggested that Boaz was clearly communicating his conviction and his commitment to pursue this reassuring Naomi of that So, indecent or inspired proposal? I would say it was an inspired proposal. And one of the things that encourages my heart is, as we see in verse 9, Ruth asserts the will of God. She goes after the will of God, graciously and decently. But she has been advised according according to wise counsel based on the word of God that this is God's will, go after it. I feel challenged by that. Because so often, God's will is presented to us but we don't go after it. God's will is put before us but like the man on the roof, we're waiting for God to work in some special way. (coughs) 
Jesus had something to say about this in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, we see Jesus responding to an inquiry by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was preaching as the forerunner to Christ and he's ended up in prison and his neck is on the line, literally. They're getting ready to behead him. And yet, he sends his servants to Jesus to say, listen, are you the one or should we look for another? Are you the one or is there the expectation of someone else? Maybe John's imprisonment caused him to feel as though, I shouldn't be in this situation if, if Jesus is the, the Messiah. Really? Maybe it was that the servants of John needed to understand that a transition needed to be made. And he was asking Jesus for their benefit so that they would follow him and transfer their allegiance to Christ. And yet, in verse 10, let's take it from... um, Verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, I'm more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written... Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist was the way preparer, the way maker, the one who went before the people to prepare the way to Christ. So often God prepares a way before us, but do we walk in it? We can be so guilty Just like these here in the gospel that Jesus is speaking to, of apathy, passivity, just being passive concerning the will of God. Verse 12, Jesus challenges this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of of heaven has suffered violence. I almost said the kingdom of God, that's how I memorize it. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by what? By force. You see, John the Baptist had prepared the way. The way was open. But the people were not laying hold of what had been given to them, what had been prepared for them, namely Jesus. And yet Jesus goes on. It's not even finished there. Some of us, that's as much as we can recall of the chapter. That verse, the highlight. But Jesus goes on. But what to, to what shall I compare this generation? Verse 16. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. You did not respond accordingly to that which was prepared for you. That which was given to you. You were unresponsive. 
John came neither eating nor drinking and they said he has a demon. Not satisfied. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him a glutton and a drunkard. Still not satisfied. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. You see, Naomi shared wise word-based counsel with Ruth. And Ruth responded and went for it. Filled with faith. Jesus is condemning these peoples. And you can read the rest of the chapter and appreciate the context. Jesus is condemning them for being unresponsive to the revelation of God's will. Are you a godly go-getter? Would you say that characterizes your life? Are you one who is responsive to the will of God? This is what we are called to be as his people. Furthermore, we recognize that God is always the one who takes the initiative. Even in salvation, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made provision for us even while we were yet sinners. And it is not just an indictment to those of us who find ourselves as being passive and lethargic, but also to those in our society. They say we live in a post-Christian society. Ah, the Bible. Yeah, seen it, heard it, moved on. There's nowhere to go from Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And this was part of his reason for this indictment. God has revealed himself in his son and yet you're still not satisfied. You're still unresponsive. To one who knows the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, understanding that we're we're sinners in need of a kinsman redeemer, in need of a relative rescuer, knowing that the son of man has come, Jesus our relative qualified to rescue. To turn from him is what is regarded as the unpardonable sin. If a person dies in that place of rejecting Christ, not responding rightly to him, there is nothing but punishment, torment and damnation that awaits There is a necessity to respond rightly to the Lord. And so, may we respond rightly to God's revelation of his will. Through his word. Through wise counsel. That's based on his word. May we respond rightly to it and not be apathetic. Lazy, careless. May we be diligent, filled with faith. Because for many of us, we have not obtained what God had for us in that instant. That's not as if, you know, God doesn't work it out and bring around other opportunities. But they may not be the same. 
Sometimes there are certain things that the Lord's calling you to do. The conviction is in your heart. I know, I've been there. And I've not responded and I've not done it. Only to see God use someone else to do it. Let us not find ourselves in that place. Let us repent of any lethargy. Any apathetic attitude. I'm going to ask the team to join me again. As I pray. And um, I particularly... I'm going to pray for those today who, who are here and you recognize you've been holding out on God and you've not laid hold of and you've not grasped with both hands that which God has been calling you to. It may be that you are aware of the gospel. And you have not rightly responded. You heard the party tunes and you held the wall. And you heard the slow jam and you held the wall. And you wouldn't dance. Jesus is calling you to the great party. And it is only um, a blessing to do the will of God. However risky it may seem, it's only a blessing. And you may think, well, I don't feel like there's anything specific that the Lord's calling me to. That's okay, because there are 66 books, 1,180 chapters of scripture for us to give ourselves to. So how are we responding to the plain text of the scripture? It doesn't have to be a small, still voice whispering in your heart. Here is the way, walk in it. It doesn't have to be that. How are we doing in obeying the Bible? Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you today with thanksgiving because you are so faithful to, to provide and to reveal your provision to us in ways that are clear and real I pray Lord that you would help us to be a people who are responsive who respond rightly Lord Lord if it's a need for prayer that we would pray if it's something to give thanks and praise about Lord we will give thanks and praise we thank you Lord Jesus that you came and fulfilled the will of the Father you said that my meat is to do the will of the Father and in all of our failings Lord you have swallowed them up in your victory in your triumph in that you were obedient even unto death. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your active obedience on our behalf, by which we are able to remain and be, re, be, be um, reconciled into right relationship with God. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, both in your living and your dying. You rightly responded on every occasion for us. That we could know forgiveness and experience fresh opportunity. Help us, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.
find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.